This is Science Modeling Talks, the podcast that features top modeling instructors and thought leaders sharing ideas. I'm your host, Mark Royce. I want to remind you to visit sciencemodelingtalks.com, where you can access a lot of extra content and learn more about us and the American Modeling Teachers Association, the professional organization that we promote. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. My guest for this episode is Jeffrey Steinert, a longtime modeling instructor who teaches at Arizona School for the Arts. Jeff went to college at Johns Hopkins, where he studied biomedical engineering, and then went on to graduate school at UC Berkeley, where he earned his master's in mechanical engineering. He first began teaching in the San Francisco Bay Area, where he began a journey to learn about effective ways to teach concepts in a way that was more accessible to students. He became aware of research and physics education in 1990, and one of his primary goals was to dramatically change both how he taught physics and how students performed investigations in the classroom. Jeff has been a modeler for 24 years now, and he has led 20 summer modeling workshops for teachers who have a desire to learn modeling instruction. Here's my conversation with Jeff. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Good, Mark. It's great to be here. Awesome. I'm glad you're here. And uh, I really appreciate you taking time to connect with me for our modeling talk. Um, I... I wanted to just have you tell us a little bit about yourself for those uh, who are listening who don't know who you are. Tell us a little bit about um, where you are and what you're doing. Well, right now, um, I'm teaching at a charter school in Phoenix. Um, the I've been here, this is my 16th year at Arizona School for the Arts, um, we moved here from Maine in 2006, specifically so my oldest son, who was nine at the time, could go to school here. And it, uh, it just happened to be this confluence of events that brought us here. Um, my wife discovering the school when we were here on a trip, and then a job opening up and they were looking for a modeler and uh, everything just kind of fell into place and we ended up here it's a it's a college preparatory charter school public school um, for performing artists so it's singers dancers musicians um, theater folk uh, from every you know piece of theater from acting to um, musical performance to the stagecraft, um, technical sound, lighting, all those kinds of things. Um, it's a great place to teach. You know, the afternoons are great because you walk around and you just hear students singing, um, people playing music. Um, it, it's amazing. <laughs> That's that's very cool. It it sounds a little bit like my wife's charter school that she teaches at, and it's she's teaching chemistry. You're teaching physics there, is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, all the juniors take physics. So, so you said the school was looking for a modeler, right? So, tell me a little bit about what drove them to want to find a modeler. 
they'd had um, someone who'd gone through the modeling workshops that had been their physics and chemistry teacher up through 2005. Uh-huh. And they'd had a, another teacher for a year in between. Um, but they're really looking for someone who really understood the modeling instruction, how to, how to, who had done it for a number of years yeah. and had some experience with it. And I'd been doing the physics piece since 2000, since 1998. Right. So, um, that was a great match. And I think they kind of figured like I did that I could pick up the chemistry cause I understood the theory behind modeling um, and knew how it worked, so I could make the uh, the chemistry work, and I did. I went, I went and learned from Larry Dukerich the summer afterwards, you know, to uh, to actually make sure I was like up on the chemistry concepts and things like that. That's convenient that he's there in Arizona alongside of you. There, that's pretty cool. Absolutely. That was another reason for coming here. Actually, it was, it was, yeah, that was, that was uh, probably the third out of four or five things that that just fell into place. So you're teaching both chemistry and physics now. Um, I was um, when I first came here. The school was smaller, and we only had about fifty students per grade. So mm-hmm. that was two two classes, and so. I taught physics to the juniors and chemistry to the seniors. Um, Mm -hmm. Since then, we've expanded. So now I only teach the juniors, and we have about 100 students per grade level. So that's a full-time teaching load. Now, your your master's degree was in mechanical engineering. That's right. Talk to me about how you how you rolled from that into the two sciences, the physical sciences that you're involved with. I finished my master's in the mid 80s and that was there was really a a time where the jobs were all in southern california in aerospace and defense contracts yeah. you know things like that and it wasn't really what i was interested in doing um and my father had been a teacher since the 50s um, so it was always kind of in my mind that, you know, teaching might be a, an option. And <clears throat> I found when I was in grad school that I was good at explaining things to other grad students. Huh. And so it just kind of fell into place. You know, it was another one of those things where, well, a job opened up and I applied for it and I got it. And, you know, I was teaching at a private Catholic girls high school in the Mission District in San Francisco. Ah. Um, And I did that for four years. And I taught everything from chemistry, physics, advanced algebra, pre-calc. It was a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So tell me about the path that moved you from where your degree was into modeling specifically. I mean, how did you get introduced to modeling uh, what was the circumstances around your journey there? I have a friend who was on the staff at Los Alamos um, in the in the mid nineties, and he sent me the first page of 
1995 article by uh, well, the first author was Malcolm, but David and Greg Swackhammer, David Huston is and Greg Swackhammer. And of course, it was just the first page. He sent me the first page of like four different articles from AJP. Um, and I, I still have it somewhere, actually. Huh. Um, and, and you read the first page of the, of the thing and it's like, wait, <laughs> where's the rest of this? <laughs> you know, so um, one of the things I'd noticed is that my students would be really good at something right after I taught it. And then there would be a quick decay in the knowledge and understanding and recall of those things so that we'd come back around to something and they completely forgotten what we did three months ago, you know, in terms of how to apply it and didn't see the connections. And so when I read the the article, I thought, well, you know, this seems like a good option. Like, let me see what it's about. Um, and I'd already been familiar with Arnold Aaron's work from his first thinner publication, not the big thick one that we use now for uh, for the modeling workshops, but the thinner version. Um, and I'd, uh, I'd actually um, like read some of the articles connected with it. So Lillian McDermott's work, Ron Thornton, I, and I'd actually been down to Tufts because um, I was, by then I was teaching in Maine. Um, so this is 1990s. There was a cross country move there. You, might have figured that out um and uh yeah um from california uh, all the way to maine that's that's yeah, a big move yeah. <laughs> so i i got interested in like using microprocessor based equipment when uh, i was at some conference at tufts and i don't remember what it was but one of the afternoon options was to go over to ron thornton's lab and they had motion detectors like these were the first ultrasonic motion detectors right and i i spent like the whole afternoon there going just like this is the most incredible thing i've ever seen in my life yeah. i've got to have these right yeah. and 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 then began to like kind of gradually collect a little bit of equipment as my budget allowed. Um, but then the, this option, this opportunity, really, I got in touch with Jane Jackson and asked about like, okay, uh, obviously I'd missed the first, um, the 1996, 95, 96 rotation because I didn't get the article until a couple of years after it had been published. And, so Jane let me know that they were having another round of leadership workshops. Um, and I got in for that. And my principal was like really supportive. He was amazing throughout this process. He was like all the way through. I mean, I know some people have issues with like administration sometimes when they make a big change yeah and he was just like you know what's best you know how, you know what's best for how to teach um physics i trust you completely to do this um 
they Bates College um, gave me a big grant to buy all the computers and equipment, the, the iMacs back in the day, uh-huh. um, and uh, <laughs> and and all the uh, I think they were ULIs originally, um, and then upgraded to the Lab Pros <laughs> um, at some point, and you know I I think it was really tying together. Um, the equipment and the way that it could be used really productively to get students to understand things on their own that connected me with the modeling. Because when we first went through the workshop and I saw how they could derive kinematic equations from the lab, I was sold. Huh. I mean, that was it. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, this is the way to go. Yeah. I don't have to stand at the board and tell them stuff. We can we can do it from the lab data, from the results of their own experiments. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell me other ways that the modeling instruction, as you learned it, improved your teaching in the classroom. Well, I learned mainly to shut up and listen. That's <laughs> pretty much it. I mean, the only way you know if students understand it is if they get to talk about it instead of you. Right. right? So. Um, Wow. I can talk all day. I got really good at doing problems because I did a lot. Yeah. You know? Now I do one, two problems in a unit, hmm. um, kind of as like model how I want them to structure things so that they're being complete about things. And then, you know, all right, the rest of it is you. You guys are going to show me how you solve the problems. You're going to, you know, and explain it to each other. Yeah. So you've been modeling for 24 years now, I think, is what I read. Is that Hard right? to believe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> modeling for 24 years. There's not a lot of people around the country that have been doing it that long. But that's pretty cool. You got in early. And beyond that, you've been teaching uh, modeling workshops to other teachers who are exploring and, and finding out about modeling. So here's my question. What insights have you gained you've taught over 20 uh workshops in the last in the last years what what insights would you say you've gained the most after doing the workshops for that long a period of time well i think the first benefit is when i lead a workshop it's like teaching all of mechanics over again hmm so hmm. I am, I've actually, you said I've been modeling for 24 years. It's more like 44 oh. because <laughs> every time I do a workshop, it's like another year under my belt. Um, oh. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and the teachers are sometimes the best students because they have insights, you know, especially those that have been teaching for a while and can really see why the modeling works they have insights into things that you know my students don't because you know they're they're taking physics for the first time so i've had students ask me or teachers ask me great questions as we're doing it about the whys and well what if you did this instead and those are things that i end up like often including in activities that i create um in the classroom, you know, that that are maybe a little different or completely in addition to 
the typical modeling curriculum that's in the materials that are published and we use with the participants. Yeah. And in the resources that are available online, like at the AMTA site and, and that kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, a few, a few of those things that um, I, I know I've created and some other people like Mark Schober mm-hmm. um, have made their way into there. Um, yeah. Sometimes I don't even know how it happened, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. I mean, like, the best stuff is the stuff you steal from someone else is kind of how I figure it. Yeah. Because if it's good, it's good. Yeah. So. And, and the whole modeling community tends to just disseminate information with the, to each other and, you know, from wherever they're found, the information is found. That's very cool. Um, so I read... Uh, <laughs> this is a, a different question, different direction. I read that you've done some research on analyzing the scores on con- concept inventories, like written some papers or done some stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned through it? Yeah, that um, that was something that like started about 20 years ago. I read a paper by David Meltzer, I think it had to do with um, a hidden variables in student gains on the force concept inventory. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he felt like, you know, the mathematics ability, of course, was like one of those that you don't typically measure ahead of time. Um, and, you know, but you know that the kids that are good at math like have the tools to be able to solve equations and things like that. So they're spending less of their their working memory on remembering how to rearrange an algebraic equation and more about thinking about like should this be positive or negative, which is often a really key thing in uh, in solving the problem. Yeah. So. Um, I looked at a couple of things, and there was something else, and I don't remember why it popped up. It might have been something I was reading by Robert Karplis, but um, I ran across Tony Lawson's classroom test of scientific reasoning, and that summer, he came out with a multiple-choice version, and and so I gave both a math... um, test kind of uh, at at the beginning of the course and the classroom test of scientific reasoning um, and the FCI, of course. And then at the end of the course, um, the post-test FCI. And so um, the math test, like I took so like it was so hard to score, like in any way that made any sense. It just like I don't think I ever did anything with it, honestly. <laughs> but the um, the classroom test of scientific reasoning was easy to score because it was multiple choice, right? You know, mm. So um, the so I did that, um, but I didn't really know how to look at those scores, which is basically a measure of the student's um, cognitive development, like at, when they take the test at so the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and the FCI, of course, measures their gain in conceptual understanding. What what ended up happening was I had gathered this data for three or four years, and 
I happened to open up the December 2005 American Journal of Physics, and there was an article there by Vince Coletta and Jeff Phillips at Loyola Marymount that used the exact same tests I was doing, the Lawson test, Mm. scientific reasoning, um, and the FCI gain. And they'd analyzed it, you know, and so I was like, holy, like, they have like 99 students in their study, and I have over 200 in mine. So I just did the same thing they did, following what was in the article, and, and the results were, it was as if, like, my results, like, laid exactly on top of their I mean, there was there was no difference. Wow, that was the really odd thing. It was, huh. wow. I mean, their first year students at Loyola Marymount in college um, in Los Angeles, and my introductory physics students in Auburn, Maine. Like we couldn't get farther apart in the continental U.S. I don't <laughs> think either. Right. <laughs> and uh, and yet we were seeing the exact same thing. Wow. And so. Well, you know, I give I give all the credit to Vince Coletta because he's really the one that um, figured out, you know, how how to analyze this. And, you know, I've just been sharing data with him ever since. And he's been kind enough to put me on as a (laughs) co-author for what he's been publishing. So, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I think we already talked about that a couple of times. Yeah, so um, <laughs> so what out of that do you think is most important for our listeners to understand about that research? Often we tend to try to evaluate our teaching based on what our students have learned, um, and the force concept inventory is a fairly straightforward way. There's a lot of to do that. There's a lot of research uh, about how. You know what kind of gains students make under um, traditional instruction and under um, you know interactive engagement uh, processes. Richard Hake wrote a paper back in 1996, 98, somewhere in there, mm. um, that compared 6,000 students. Um, there's another variable in there, though. David Meltzer was right. The other variable is what's your student's cognitive development because. Um, going all the way back to the work of um, Scheer and AD in England in the 1980s, um, if you can improve a student's cognitive level, they're going to get more out of every course they take because it doesn't matter what the subject area. They're going to be able to process at a higher rate. They're going to be, they're going to reflect on their own learning. The whole metacognition only happens when you get to a certain level. So, Knowing where your students are in their cognitive level um, really gives you some idea about like what you might expect to see for gains on the FCI and how those would compare. So if, if you look at the physics teacher article that um, Vince and, and Jeff and I published in 2007, the, it's split up into quartiles, like where the students started in terms of their cognitive development and what kind of gains you we see um, in each of those quartiles. And they clearly go up. Um, 
hmm. as, as the students' loss and test scores go up. So, I mean, I, I use it every year. It gives me an idea at the beginning of the year which students might struggle a little bit, too, because hmm. um, students with lower loss and test scores um, are going to struggle more with, um, you know, just kind of making sense, bringing, you know, one of the things about physics is it all makes sense. But it really can only make sense if you have the cognitive ability to make sense of it and not be spending all your working memory trying to understand the words or the math, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is. But you can spend it on the concepts and really, um, a- and it has to bother you when there are inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, until you get to a certain cognitive level, oh well, <laughs> it just doesn't bother you, right? Right, right. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. A three-year-old thinks it's magic when certain things happen, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then they start looking for the thing you hid behind your back. Usually, it's at about one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody! We'll get back to our interview in just a moment. But the AMTA wants you to know that summer virtual courses are filling up fast. Make sure to reserve your seat today. To see a full list of the virtual courses and workshops, visit modelinginstruction.org. Modelinginstruction.org. You can also watch the latest Meet a Modeler video by following AMTA on Facebook, Twitter, or by subscribing to their YouTube channel. Now, back to our show. I want to ask you, uh, there's a phrase when I read your bio that I didn't understand, and I know you're pretty good at this and i don't understand the phrase and maybe our listeners do because they're mostly science instructors too but you use the term hacking paradigm labs and (laughs) and i don't know what that means can you help me understand that and perhaps uh expand on it for our listeners as well sure paradigm labs is like at least in my workshop i'm not sure how much I use it in the workshops I lead, but those are the labs that we begin each unit with. Okay. So uh, that basically from which we develop the concepts that we then uh, deploy and use throughout the rest of the unit. So mm-hmm. it might be the um, what I call the ramp lab, where the cart's accelerating down the ramp and we're measuring uh, displacement, velocity, and velocity versus time um, mm-hmm. and looking at those graphs. Um, so you talk about hacking those labs. Right. So this goes back to like going to that lab where Ron Thornton's like got the first motion detectors. It's, I think it was like 15 years ago, Nick Cabot was doing his doctoral thesis and he came and visited for a week or two in my classroom. And we were you don't often get the opportunity to talk with anyone else that does modeling when you're the only physics teacher in your building. Right. So, um, so Nick and I were talking and I think it was the, it was the Atwood machine lab where, 
like I'd learned it by, you know, you have a force sensor or you're moving masses from the cart to the end of the string. And the, and every time you ran the thing, you'd get one data point. Um, and then you'd get another data point like 10, 15 minutes later. And it would take two and a half days to collect enough data to graph. Um, and by then students have forgotten what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I just had this thought. I, I was like, what if we just put a force sensor on a cart and a motion detector behind it and I could add some masses to the cart and I can just grab the force sensor and push it back and forth in front of the motion detector. Huh. And we can graph force versus acceleration. Huh. What happens then? And we did it, and we got this graph that, and the slope was the mass of the cart. And so it was like F equals MA. And and Mm -hmm. the whole lab took, to collect the data, it took them about 10 seconds, Mm. as opposed to, you know. So the the idea was to, to find ways that we can get really good data. Yeah. Um, in ways, I mean, take advantage of the technology. That's kind of, you know, we don't have to be moving masses from the end of the string onto the cart and back, back and forth like we did back in the 60s when I did, you know, or the 70s when I did the lab in my high school physics class. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Something else that you mentioned that I know... Uh, a lot of modelers are keen on uh, talking about and developing is having a storyline that in your teaching that carries from one unit to another as opposed to just isolated, you know, lessons. Talk to us about that and how important it is in your classroom and how you, you, how you develop that, how you create that storyline. Well, I think creating it was a, uh it's like been decades. Kind of. It's like, it's mm-hmm. like I, I did. It's not like I saw this story at some point and like said like, that's it. Um, but little pieces of it come in all along. Um, I mean, part of it is there are certain concepts that come up return every time. Like this idea that when things are accelerating, they can be, speeding up or slowing down or changing direction so those are things that cycle back a lot so um when we first do the kinematics you know when it's speeding up the accelerations in the same direction it's moving when it's slowing down the accelerations in the opposite direction that it's moving and then when you move to add forces into um, to to do the explanation for why things are happening, um, the idea that there's an unbalanced force in the direction of the acceleration, they can still look at an object and recognize, oh, it's moving to the right but slowing down. That means the acceleration and the unbalanced force are to the left. Um, and like they're just adding a new thing on to what they've already learned um, as they do that. Um, so it's, 
Yeah, and, and it also reinforces what they've already learned um, all along the way. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's one thing. I also like students to tell the story rather than me whenever possible. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the end of a unit, sometimes it's really obvious where we're going next. Like, we did constant velocity. Hmm. What do we do next? <laughs> you know, and the students are like, yeah, not constant? Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, at some point we're like, well, we've described motion. Would you like to know why it happens? It like, you know, let's, let's, let's go from the kinematics to the dynamics, um, um, the, the, the whys. Um, and, you know, that, I think that's the kind of storyline I'm talking about. Mm. And then we go from straight line motion to um, nonlinear motion, mm-hmm. projectile, circular motion, um, you know, those kinds of things, which um, you know, are a natural progression, you know, more complex know more stuff going on but the concepts are not a big step forward they're just like when you go from when you go to projectiles now we're talking about constant velocity horizontally which they've already done constant velocity and constant acceleration vertically we're just combining those two together um Hmm. And when we get to circular motion, since they already understand, um, hopefully, Newton's second law, we're just applying it in a little different way. It's not F net equals MA. Well, it is. It's just there's a special form for the acceleration. It's V squared over R. You can't get it using kinematics because the object's not speeding up or slowing down. It's changing direction. And so the, you know, from the results of their lab, they've discovered that the acceleration is the speed squared divided by the radius. They can just go right into, you know, using that as the acceleration um, when an object's traveling on a curved path. So that storyline helps inform how you develop your curriculum for the year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a, I mean, and I have change the order in which I do things. So I used to do projectiles earlier before forces, um, but I moved them to afterwards, um, mainly because I think it's easier to explain the why, you know, there aren't any sideways forces. So the projectile goes sideways at constant speed. Um, But there is this, you know, force we can't avoid of the earth pulling down so of course it's going to accelerate down all the way through yeah yeah so here's a question Mm -hmm. what's a secret that you've learned since starting modeling that you wish you'd known before starting modeling I, i think it's probably that teaching students a process is okay that like modeling for them a process, even writing down steps along the way. So how do you solve this problem? One, make a diagram, you know, um, 
choose positive and negative directions. Two, write down your knowns and unknowns. What do you know? Three, figure out what the model is you're using. Is it accelerating? Is it moving in a circular path? You know, what's going on here? Um, and, uh, and then, you know, how do you employ the model? Explain, you know, what, what makes sense here to use and why it makes sense. And then when you get to the end, figure out if your answer makes sense. Don't just, it's not just a number. Mm-hmm. Hopefully with units. <laughs> mm-hmm. The plus, the plus or the minus means something. The like how big it is. Like I try to make my problems realistic. You know, every once in a while I screw up, and I'm like, "Whoa, that's way too big." Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, I try to make them within the realm of possibility. Yeah. So I think, and I think that's it. I read an article recently, and I can't remember who it was by um, about. Uh, I think it was about teaching chemistry and physics um, that it's good for students to actually have algorithms for doing things because when they're learning the concepts, they have a limit. I mean, well, we all have a limited amount of working memory all the time, but when they're learning concepts, um, they need more of their working memory for those concepts. They, they can't be, like figuring out process at the same time. But if they practice the process while they're applying the new concepts and the process is laid out for them on paper, I mean, it's also why we tell them, you can't do this in your head. Start writing because I can't do it in my head either. Okay? (laughs) Right. Um, When, you know, experts have these big pieces that they automatically, it's an automaticity kind of thing. So um, I look at something, I go constant acceleration, I can use kinematics. And that just means something to me. To my students, it's not one chunk, it's still smaller pieces, so it takes up more space in their working memory. Uh Um, I have more room for looking at the other things than they do. Um, And that's the other thing. Um, I think out loud. Hmm. So when when I'm doing one or two problems during the unit to show them the structure, I'm talking, like I'm saying what I'm thinking. I'm not just doing the problem. Mm -hmm. I'm explaining like, oh, I'm doing this because I know this is true and this and this. And then I'll ask them questions, you know. Uh, to get them involved in thinking, too, about what's going on. Should I make this positive or should I make this negative? Which is it? Is it speeding up or slowing down? Which way is it moving? Hmm. So, I mean, I think those things are things that you learn through experience, that the process is going to be something that takes more time for them to learn if you don't give them kind of a a guide at the beginning, like do this, then this, then this. Right. But once they learn that process, then they're able to like branch off and say, oh, like then you can start asking the questions, well, what if we did this instead? (laughs) Then what would happen? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't like just completely overwhelm them and blow their mind. That's Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. 
Um, so are there any like specific tips that you would give to modelers who maybe who are starting out or those who might be looking for more information from a, an experienced modeler like yourself? Uh, any great tips that you want to share with our, our listeners? I think there's a couple of things. One um, would be if you're not a member of like AAPT, like look at the journals, like the physics teacher and the American Journal of Physics. Um, even if you just look back through, um, sometimes they have uh, resource letters that give you insights into like what research people have done about physics education, like how students learn physics. Mm -hmm. Because those things, sometimes they're like, you know, way up, a little higher level than I can use, but there are often things in there that are really great. And mm. I've invented like whole activities um, from certain papers. Um, I remember there was one uh, by, I think it was Lee Bao and Dean Zolman and Kristen Hogg, maybe that was a, uh, about Newton's third law. And they had some great images in there and, I just made a whole force pairs um, activity that mm. I use for a couple of days with students, um, and it gives them a really good insight into that. Um, so don't be afraid to read the things. Um, and I think some of the more recent research into um, gender equity um, in the physical sciences um, is really spot on there's a there's an article um by uh miyaki um and a whole bunch of other people i don't recall everyone's names at uh i think it was the university of colorado that um that had to do with uh values affirmation using a um a values affirmation for students at the beginning of the year it only takes like 15 minutes hmm. and in their study it completely erased any differences in outcomes in terms of physics learning during the physics course which was like hmm. completely at odds with the control group hmm. um, and then the, the whole idea of self-efficacy and promoting that that especially among female students um, Vashti Sautel who was a graduate student at Florida International University. When I first met her, she was in one of my workshops a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, she's at Michigan State now, I believe, and doing like really interesting research in how modeling instruction um, promotes self-efficacy among uh, women mm. in the physical sciences. Right. Um, so there's a lot to be said. My students are 70% female, so uh -huh. this is really important to me. Right. Um, you know, we're a vast majority female school. Um, yeah. So. I know you've mentioned that it's important not to feel like you can't invent for your own classroom the methods that you're using. Can you expand on that a little bit? If you're a teacher, you know your students better than anyone else. Um, and so everyone's situation is a little different. Um, there, are, there are times when you'll modify something just for 
like one student even hmm. like you might have a student that's way beyond everyone else or that's struggling and the modifications would look different for those two students of course but um you you do things based on like who you have in the room i think is the is you know, it has to be the bottom line for any any class, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's different from year to year. So, um, having that ability to speed up or slow down if you need to, um, reteach something when mm-hmm. when it makes sense. Um, I think it, a lot of, and again, it goes back to that idea of listen to the students, try to get them to ask questions of one another. When they're whiteboarding, um, I try to like back off as the year goes by, you know. So hmm. there's always kind of in the middle of the year when clearly this this group has done something that's not correct, and you can feel that there's um, a couple of students that are uncomfortable, but they're not asking anything, and I'll just start i'll wait and wait and wait and i'll go like all right well let's look at the next problem and then they'll be like somebody will go um (laughs) um, i didn't get that (laughs) i was like yeah well then speak up what do you have a question ask it i don't want to always be the one that says like why did you do this or like i want them to to be the ones that come around to doing that by the end of the course yeah that's great Well, Jeff, it's been awesome talking with you. I have enjoyed our conversation very much, and I think that your insights are really valuable and your experience. And uh, are you teaching a workshop this summer? Are you heading? Are you going to be involved with workshops this Uh, year? Yeah, I'm. uh, I'm co-leading the mechanics workshop at Arizona State Mm -hmm. this summer, June sixth through. Two through twenty fourth, yeah. Okay, six through twenty four, that's awesome. Uh, my co leader is uh, Melissa Germscheid, mm. um, and she's done computational modeling workshops. I've co led with her before online. Awesome, awesome modeler. I'm really happy to be working with her. We did a recent interview with uh, Melissa not too long ago. So, if you're interested, you can go listen on our website at sciencemodelingtalks.com. Yeah. And this will be posted there, and people can, uh, you know, hear this episode as well as check uh, details about you. We'll post your bio and a few other uh, things, information about you. And if you're interested in Jeff's workshop, you can go to the AMTA website and uh, find out a lot more. Modelinginstruction.org and find out more about when it is and how to get registered and that kind of thing. So, Well, Jeff, I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with me and to share with our listeners the insights that you have had. It's great, great to talk to you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it, too. Model on. (laughs) Yes, model on. Thanks so much for joining us on another episode of Science Modeling Talks. Head over to sciencemodelingtalks.com and you'll be able to listen to any of our archived episodes and access our show notes, which include guest bios, show highlights, and links to resources that were mentioned during the interview. While you're there, subscribe to our show so you won't miss out on any of our episodes. 
When you join this community through our email list, we'll send you a link to a lot of awesome resources from the American Modeling Teachers Association. Okay, so that's our show. As always, remember to keep striving for excellence in your classroom.